0: You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: And Neil, it's so exciting to be back for season five with you. I'm, I can't wait to do all the cool stuff we're going to do this year.
1: Season five, a new season and a new year. Yeah,
0: it's going to be great. And And I, as I understand, you've just picked up a new book, right? I think it's called Bit by Bit. Will you tell me a little bit about it?
1: Yes. A little bit? <laughs> so um, a little bit by bit. I'll tell you about it bit by bit. So I'm very excited by this book. Um, actually, I, I had the pleasure. I swung past Princeton on the way back from Europe this year and uh, met the author, Matthew Salganick. And why am I excited about this book? What Matthew's doing is he's a social scientist who's very computationally aware. So he's a computational social scientist. I think he would describe himself. And he's very clued up on social science techniques and also very clued up on machine learning techniques. And what this book is addressed at is two things. One, for social scientists who want to get to grips with machine learning. It's extraordinary. It covers so many important... I mean, you can. it's one of those books you can flick it open to any page. I just have done that. On, on this um, page, he's describing um, a procedure for combining social media data with... Um, better, sort of more rigorous um, survey data to enhance them. This is a classic sort of thing you want to be able to do in social science research, you know, deal with bias by doing a rigorous survey, but uh, sort of increase the reach of it by combining it with social media data. New ways of asking questions, page 107, is just sort of covering uh, what machine learning does for you, how you can improve surveys linked to big data sources. It's written, I think, almost entirely without maths. But yet, uh, I mean, Matthew clearly has a deep understanding of these subjects, and he explains them clearly and succinctly. Then I would also say it's excellent for people in machine learning that are interested in learning much more about the ethical issues behind social science research, what it means to deal with human data. We need to get so much better at thinking about this, dealing with this. I mean, I, I don't want to say we're ignoring it as a community. We're definitely not. Some of the, you know, I think... Kate Crawford's very much part of the community, has given talks at our conferences. Hannah Vollock uh, is is in this area. There are many great examples of best practice in this area. But I think we need much better understanding across the field. And it's got some really sort of, what's the right way of putting it, excellent descriptions of, of, of why ethics is important and the sort of issues that arise there. It's very readable. I mean, it's not it's not short, but it's it's very readable, and uh, I'd highly recommend it. I think the the reason I find it so important. I mean, there's many good books around about different aspects of machine learning, but I'm I'm very conscious of the gaps between of thinking between certain areas which need to be filled very quickly. And this is one of them. If, if social scientists don't understand the sort of uh, techniques of machine learning and the challenges of machine learning, then their conversation about machine learning and AI coming into society um, just becomes detached from reality. And if machine learners don't understand the very important Uh, understanding that social scientists have about how to do social research and um, what the challenges and ethics of it are, then we're at risk of doing tremendous damage uh, by deploying algorithms that don't take that into account. So... Text that cross that with such a, it's sort of unusual to have someone who has such a depth of knowledge and clarity of explanation across two fields. So we're very lucky to have this book. So I'd highly recommend it.
0: That's fantastic. It sounds like, and it's, I really love the point that you made about Kate Crawford and Hannah Wallach and the work that they're doing, which is amazing. And we have these areas of best practice, but we need more to focus on helping that to become a regular practice. And I'm so excited by the idea of this book because it feels like so I, when I was in school, when I was like 12, I did French back to back. And I went and lived in France for like a tiny little bit. And we had a French student who came and lived with our family. And the thing that saved us was pocket dictionaries. And this feels like a pocket dictionary. I cannot wait to dive into this book.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, dive into it is exactly the thing. You know, that is, by the way, that is how you find out if, if a book is good. You just do a bit of random sampling. You just pick it up and uh, flicked for a few pages and if you find something interesting on every page you flick to you kind of know he's got a good book of course you then check in the back to see if it cites you i don't think this one does <laughs> but still despite that it doesn't cite me or you Catherine. well uh, but despite that it's an excellent book so that's really <laughs> showing something if i'm recommending a book that doesn't cite me
0: <laughs> <laughs> and tell me again the author's name neil
1: um, I don't know. If, I think I've got the pronunciation of this right. Matthew Salganik. He's, at, um, he's based at Princeton. He's, uh, I think he's uh, off to the New York Times for a sabbatical for the next few months. Um, and uh, he's, I think he's in uh, social sciences at Princeton, but he's also part of their CSL institute, as far as I understand.
0: Nice. So that's bit by bit. We'll have a bit more about bit by bit. I can't stop myself on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is about the continent of Africa. So I understand that ICLR is going to be held in Africa, not this year, but the next year. But isn't there already data science Africa? What else should I know about data science activities and MLAI already taking place on the continent? And what do you guys think ICLR should know coming in? So, Neil, this seems like a pretty big question.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, um, ICLR is going to be in Addis in Ethiopia in 2020, which is exciting. It'll be It's the first uh, major machine learning conference, which will be on the African continent. You're right, of course, there is data science Africa as well, but data science Africa is much smaller. It's uh, more of a... I mean, each meeting we we tend to restrict to about 70 people and we do a lot of focused summer school work for three days followed by a workshop for two days, which uh, is is not in the form of a conference. It's a sort of more focused thing.
0: And we should say, Neil, that you have been involved in helping Data Science Africa sort of get organized. And I believe it's run by one of the people who was a student of yours. Is that right?
1: Uh, Postdoc. So actually, it's now run. um, so So I guess the main thing I've been doing is helping people learn how to run conferences, which I kind of is now, it feels a bit complete. So with Data Science Africa, I mean, not complete, I mean that group really knows what they're doing now. I mean, I kind of went to Abuja in November and I was like, oh, wow, I don't really need to be here. I mean, I'm enjoying being here. It's interesting. But if I was here, it wasn't here, all this would go on. And that was kind of the idea there. Uh, it's run. Uh, there's a, it's a not-for-profit or a, I guess they, I think they call it an NGO out of Kenya that's forming around it. And the aim is it's all African-based researchers on the organizing board. And so there's, I think it's a, a couple of Kenyans, a couple of Ugandans, and a Tanzanian, most of whom have been featured on talking machines at some point, which is great. Now, but but that's only one part of the equation. So, of course, there's also the Indaba, the deep learning Indaba. And the deep learning Indaba, my understanding, their initial goal was noticing that they didn't, there were no um, papers from the African continent at Europe's, but that's now changed. In fact, I was just down in MLSS in South Africa, and Benji Rosman was uh, telling me that they had a paper from Stellenbosch and a paper from, from Witz, his university, his team had a paper. Definitely, the there's, there's papers coming out of South Africa that are getting into Europe's, which is great. Of course, the those universities are probably in term, you know, they're in a slightly different position to say perhaps. University of Nairobi or Makere or uh, Dakota University in terms of the quality of students they're getting. It was interesting at MLSS actually the diversity of students. We, we had, I think we had at least one Kenyan, but they were based in South Africa. Um, we had uh, you know several different uh, a lot of lots of South Africans. We had people coming from europe and the states and then some smatterings of students from across african continent but but one thing that was striking me i it was really good mlss i i saw some great talks from i mean for me i just sat in the talks uh, trying to also get my slides prepared but it's just such a great chance i was sebastian novitsin for example on on gans arthur gretton on mmd David Bly on variational inference. So so it's top of the top of the top, you know, all, all great stuff. And I, I learn a lot just by sitting in there. Of course, there's sometimes a gap between that. And it was one of the points I was making in my talk and the application and what it's like to deploy on data. And that's the, the DSA focus is much more on that gap. It's interesting that this question comes up from a listener because we had at the Dali meeting, which we also had in South Africa before MLSS. That was a question to Shiramania, who's leading Data Science Africa, one of the key organisers. I mean, leading—he's uh, sort of driving the setting up of the not-for-profit. And it's probably easiest to give his answers. So it's sort of um. He says, I can't remember, I can't put it exactly how he put it. He said, Well, it sort of depends what your aim is, whether it is beneficial for African machine learning. And I, well, I know that underlying that, that there's a sense that some conferences, and I'm not saying this will happen with ICLR, uh, he calls it bungeeing. They come in, land in, say, Nairobi, everyone flies in from the States, and then they all fly out again. And, you know, that's, um, uh, maybe, then maybe that's not a bad thing, but it doesn't necessarily change anything. I, I think with Addis, it's in, I don't know Addis. And uh, I, of course, if you fly in with a large number of people, like, do I really learn that much about Montreal when I'm in Montreal? Well, I learn that they, what the type of food they have, what sort of restaurants they have. But I don't really spend a lot of time with the people of Montreal. Well, I did this year. I spent some time with, with people in Montreal, but I can't really claim to know the city. So that's clearly going to be the case. Do you, you get to sort of grips with the sort of challenges the students are facing locally? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But on the other hand, you know, I think it, it brings a big spotlight on uh, Africa and the opportunities and challenges there. I think the Ndaba has also done that. So there's a lot going on. Ndaba has also, they've done the summer schools in, well, uh, I don't know if they call them summer schools, but... They've done the Indaba schools in South Africa. They're going to go to Nairobi. And it's just raising awareness overall about uh, African machine learning. And I know of, I mean, like Mark Dyson just spent a sabbatical in Ames in Kigali teaching. And I think that that was either, was directly inspired by sort of being involved in the Indaba. So all that's got to be a good thing. It's like raising, but it was making me think, we're getting a lot of attention now on Africa, which is great, but... Kind of what about South America? And I started wondering, it was interesting. I was thinking this, because we had the affinity group meeting, the um, town hall, and listening to I, I don't recall her name, but the, the lady that led Latin X, I really was that was all news to me. I mean, not news to me. I mean I I I, I realized after she spoke the Latin Americans have a massive problem with prejudice in the US to an extent which I don't think that they have so much in Europe. Maybe they would dispute this, uh, and, and I, I obviously I don't know, but it was a big eye-opener to me on that, the sort of thing she was talking about. I remember when I was visiting Berkeley in like 2003, I had a Mexican PhD student, and I told someone, I've got a Mexican PhD student. They said, "They said a Mexican PhD? Like, as if that was a shocking thing. And it's sort of like, but and of course, it's that like they were an educated sort of left-leaning person, but it did maybe sort of Slightly concerned a bit that South America has a lot of issues as well, and um, maybe we should also be doing more in that area. And actually, South America has—I mean, obviously, we can't do everything—but South America has a lot of really good universities, really good universities. People getting great students from there.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think all of the like well-established conferences in the in the field can can do more to be more global. And of course, it's going to come with having to think very specifically about other issues that that raises, because in in Ethiopia, where ICLR is going to be, homosexuality is a criminal offense. So that raises other issues for the rest of the community. So we just need to, I think we need to approach these questions of how we navigate the entirety of our space.
1: No, it's extremely complex. It's extremely complex. Like uh, on the, uh, you know, as you mentioned, that's sort of I think that's an intersectionality issue. One of the challenges is most, a lot of African states which um, were colonies of Britain got left with like the laws of Britain from whenever they became independent which at that point homosexuality was illegal in the UK up until the 1960s or something. So they just in most of these states cases they haven't even looked at those laws. In Uganda I mean you can watch things about this. There have been Active evangelical churches present in the country, mainly from the United States, advocating for stronger anti-homosexuality laws. There's a documentary on it called, I think, God Loves Uganda or something, which is specifically about people targeting. And it's a sort of known phenomena of certain churches go, they target Uganda as what they think it can be some sort of Eden on Earth. And they go there and they uh, propagate very extreme agenda. And of course, in some sense, you say, oh, well, we're just going over there and propagate with so <laughs> Bayesian beliefs. I mean, you have these. So, so it's extremely complicated. And I think I'm um, totally right to be concerned about. And it becomes more complicated with larger conferences. But having said that, this isn't the first, you know, lo- locating in the United States, it makes it very difficult for Iranian students. You know, we have had conferences going to Israel, which makes it very different for students from many countries. That was, I think, ICML, went to Haifa. Conference is going to China, which uh, restricts um, freedom of speech in many areas. It's not easy. And uh, I think overall, I, I think I applaud them for taking the decision. It will generate questions, and maybe that's important that it will generate. Maybe that's exactly the thing, that this, what we're talking about is generating those questions. One of the, you know, we've had a lot of debates around this uh, type of thing in the community recently and the only thing that makes me really angry about those debates is when they make out that these issues are binary that there's a right and a wrong that it's clear and that people are just wrong and that they just don't understand i know that's easy to do i know it's easy to tweet things that show that and everyone can show your support but all these issues are much more complicated than that The more we can have the debate as a community rather than shouting at each other and sort of respectfully sort of think about that there are issues on both sides, that being a really good example. So homosexuality is illegal in Ethiopia, but uh, by taking the conference to Ethiopia, you're you're hopefully putting a spotlight on and some very important areas of application that aren't catered for by the normal sort of Silicon Valley driven um, startup culture.
0: I think I, I really love Shira's advice, right? To even just think about the fact that you are basically bungeeing in and what that means for what that means for you, what that means for the place that you're going to, what you should try to learn, and how you should be aware of yourself and your assumptions and your background. And and just just all of those things. I really love the sort of the, the metaphor of bungeeing in. And I think that just really encapsulates things well and gives us a really nice starting place for that ongoing debate, for that ongoing conversation where we need to include all the voices of people who are partaking in it because it's not it's not a binary thing. It's not a binary thing. And we need to if we're going to learn from it, we need to talk through the whole thing.
1: And it's good. It's good that we're having this conversation. It's truly really driven us to talk about this now. And, and and those conversations will continue. But as I say, let's not forget, um, there's many... Other, I mean, Eastern Europe. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know there's uh, there's lots of challenges for students in, in Ukraine as well. I mean, or wherever, uh, Belarus or whatever. I mean, there's some good education there. South America. There's a whole world of applications. And actually what we should... I think we should view it as a, as a whole, which is, I'm sure, what we will continue to do.
0: Yeah, totally. How do we be less Anglo-normative, right? Anglo-normative. Yeah. How do we is experience that, the rest of the world?
1: Is that normative as in the Normans? As in like the...
0: Yeah, 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 Anglo-Anglo.
1: Anglo-normative, <laughs> right? yeah. Oh, no, the Normans were French. Well, actually, they were originally from Viking land, Northmen. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, I'm but just lumping they... all of of Western Europe together. It's just one big smoosh.
1: It is all comes from Britain. I, I'm glad that you will. Well, England specifically. <laughs> Let's see how many people can offend. I'm glad. Well, no, I think that that is very, it's fascinating. The extent to which our worldview is driven by what would be a sort of, a lot of people would, like the French would say, sort of Anglo-Saxons, but sort of the Anglo-American perspective on the world. It is so out of whack with what many people think. And uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it needs to be borne in mind. Yeah.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, we will have more about Indaba and Data Science Africa and also ICLR up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a question, you can tweet at us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. The Twitter handle still remains. Or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is the one and only Daphne Kohler. And I got a chance to sit down and talk with her at Open Data Science Conference West in the end of 2018. And we got to have a fantastic conversation. So I'd like to just start with your career.
2: Take us through it. You've been through some amazing stuff. (laughs) Uh, Well, you summarized it very briefly in your introduction. Um, I spent most of my career as a Stanford professor. I started to do machine learning long before it was the uh, movement that it is today, so in the early 90s. um, I started to apply machine learning to biology also long before it became um, a thing in the way that it is today, so in the late 90s. And I worked in a whole variety of different application areas. I think there is a theme throughout my career of trying to become more and more applied and relevant to real-world problems. I started out very theoretical and then became more interested in actually making an impact. And that took me into an unexpected direction towards uh, 2011, when a project that i had been engaged in at Stanford together with some colleagues in trying to bring technology into education led to the launch of the first three Stanford massive open online courses, which was sort of a, a real, I think, revelation to all of us to see how much pent-up demand out there there was for high-quality education. And so when we saw that um, each of those courses that we launched in the fall of 2011 had an enrollment of 100,000 people or more, um, it was sort of a moment in time when I knew I could go back and write some more papers. So um, <laughs> much as fun as that was. And so I took what was supposed to be a two-year leave of absence from Stanford and um, went off with uh, my co-founder, Andrew Ring and we founded Coursera. <laughs> At the Beginning of 2012, I always meant to go back to Stanford. Then when that time came that I needed to make the decision, it was clear that what I was doing was so significant and yet so fragile at that early mm-hmm. stage that I resigned my Stanford position and stayed at uh, Coursera throughout August of 2016. Then Coursera was in a good place. It's doing amazingly well. I'm really proud of, um, of how well it's doing um, under the new CEO, uh, Jeff's leadership. And so I decided that I wanted to come back and be part of this amazing machine learning revolution that we're seeing around us but in an area that's always been close to my heart, which is how do we make an impact in the area of human health? Mm -hmm. And so how do we bring together those threads of the big data revolution that biotechnology has enabled in the human health space together with the kind of analytical techniques that machine learning has opened up to us and really try and, and do things differently in this new space. Yeah,
0: and I wanna talk more about that as, yeah. as we have more time, but take me back to Coursera for a little bit. What, what were your hopes for Coursera, when it was sort of that fragile thing in the in this age of like the good exit, what were your personal hopes for it?
2: Well, I think that when we did those three first courses, uh, what struck me was the fact that not only did we have a hundred thousand uh, learners in each of those classes, but um, they weren't by and large um, among the privileged students who had the opportunity to attend an institution like Stanford or Princeton, but really they came from every country, every age group, and every walk of life. And to me, that access component was such an important thread that really underlay everything that we did at Coursera. And I think the, the mission that we laid out for Coursera is that, and I'll just I'll quote it verbatim, is that we envision a world where anyone anywhere can transform their life by having access to the world's best learning experience. And we worked really hard to make that happen. So, um, yeah, yeah, pretty amazing. So maybe if there's an opportunity later, I can share some learner stories with you because that was the thing that we did every week at Coursera at all hands. We just talked about how we transform the lives of learners.
0: Yeah, please, can you share them with us now?
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I have I, literally, I think, hundreds of them. So I'll, I'll do one, which is among my favorites, but there's many others that uh, we can do. So one of my favorites, because it sort of comes full circle, is the story of Sharmeen from Bangladesh. Sharmeen was a young lady who took very seriously the fact that many of her young friends were being sold into indentured servitude um, to a husband or an employer because their families were too poor to feed them. This is a practice that unfortunately is quite common in Bangladesh. And so she convinced a friend to run away with her and they started a bakery but neither of them had ever run a business, so the bakery started to flounder and wasn't enough to sustain them until someone at a local aid center told them about online courses. So she started to just take courses online. She's an incredible young lady. She took courses from Penn and from Michigan and from Irvine and and from Wharton, and she learned how to run a business. And within a few months, the business was making not uh, $900 a month, but $5,000 a month, which is enough to sustain not only her and her friend, but also five other girls that she was able to save from from indentured servitude. And so basically this was a business that was feeding seven women in Bangladesh. And um, every week she made sure that the women who worked for her also had some time in their schedule to take other online courses so that they could find the path forward to an even better life. So to me, this story is not only remarkable in that version, which was the one where we first encountered it, but uh, two years later, I'd stayed in touch with Charmaine and um, she sent me an email saying that she felt like the best path for her to have an even larger impact on her local ecosystem was to go and get a formal education and because of this transformative journey that she'd been on, she was able to be admitted and go attend physically the INSEAD Business School, which is one of the world's best business schools um, It's in Europe and so she now has an MBA and I think it's just an amazing story of success. Wow, yeah, please. It's, it's literally life saving it's, yeah. it's literally changing people's lives. It, it is. And, you know, these anecdotes are what brings it home. But we did um, studies, statistics to see whether these are just, you know, the one-off anecdotes. And um, so it, we launched in 2016 our very first um, Coursera Learner Survey where we reached out to people who had completed courses and we asked them, when, given that you com- when you completed these courses, did your lives change in a material way and we gave them a, a list of options saying if it did you know how in what ways did it change and what we found that for those learners for whom career change had been their main goal, which is over half our learners thirty three percent of them i mean eighty seven percent had received some benefit, but thirty three percent had had their careers literally transformed by they were previously unemployed and they had a job, or they suddenly had access to a much higher paying job. And that's 33% worldwide. As you went into people who were categories of people who were less advantaged, ones from low, lower socioeconomic status or didn't have a bachelor's degree going in, or from uh, developing countries, that percentage went up to 40 or even 45%. And so this was a transformative impact on the lives of literally millions of people.
0: All from taking three courses at
2: Stanford and making them slightly larger, right? Well, we had, I mean, by the end of this, I mean, we have over, I think, over 2,000 courses now. And today, we have over 35 million learners in every single country in the world. That's amazing. And you, you've been involved in, in so many fantastic projects,
0: Calico, in Citro. Um, tell me, for, for those of us who are trying to grow their ideas, perhaps in academia or, or in younger stages of the career in industry, what, what advice do you have for scaling an idea, growing an idea, seeing it make that tr- transition from, from a seed to something impactful?
2: Yeah, so first of all, for those of you who are going that path, you should know that this is not an easy path, and there will be many, many bumps in the road and many times where you feel like this is just not working and I need to give up. And I think this, one of the things that distinguishes a successful entrepreneur from one who's not is the willingness to just stick through it at times when it seems like it's just impossible and it's never going to work. Um, So this sort of feeling of, I mean, what um, what Angela Duckworth calls grit, which is so important at the younger ages in school and oftentimes distinguishes younger students who are able to succeed from ones that are not, it's equally important when you're trying to, to to build your own business. So that's one piece of advice. The other, but maybe related to that from the other side is you shouldn't take this on because you want to be an entrepreneur. People who do that are very rarely ones who succeed, maybe because it's so difficult to stick with it when the going gets tough. You should be an entrepreneur when you have an idea or a mission that is so burdening to you that you can't not do it. And that's often what gives you the grit to be successful when the going really gets tough, which, assuring you, it will.
0: (laughs) And let's talk a little bit about your latest idea. Tell me about In situ and the work that you're doing.
2: So, um, In Citro emerged from this observation that I think we heard about in the uh, eloquently described in the previous talk, which is that machine learning is transforming sector after sector of economy and human endeavor. And I think if you'd asked me, if uh, ten or even five years ago about some of the advances that we see in machine learning today, I would have said about something yeah, maybe but not you know maybe towards the end of my lifetime or after that we 'll see those and yet now, less than five years later we 're seeing some of this amazing progress that um, that we heard about just a few moments ago, and, and there 's many other examples as well but one area that 's been relatively less touched by that type of progress in the last few years is the area of human biology and human health. And I think that's due to a couple of different factors. One of those is that the big driver behind the success of machine learning in so many different disciplines is the availability of big data. And up until a few years ago, big data in biology used to be a couple hundred samples, really, I mean, those that was a large data set. And, you know, with a couple hundred samples, I mean, honestly, you do well, you do a reasonable job of logistic regression, and it's just about as well as you can do. And I think we're now, literally at the cusp of a transformation in the availability of technologies that were developed completely outside of machine learning by biologists and, and bioengineers that allow us to really um, generate biological data at an unprecedented scale, at a scale of not hundreds and not even thousands, but millions or tens of millions of data points. So I think that's one of the necessary ingredients to allow the kind of progress that we hope to see in this field. And it's only now becoming possible. I mean, three years ago, I probably wouldn't have uh, tried to start something like in Citro. And then the other thing that I think is absolutely critical to making this kind of progress of of that machine learning can make in a domain is the availability of people who are genuinely bilingual. Mm -hmm. That is, they understand machine learning, but they also understand the domain well enough. Because otherwise, you get this kind of bifurcation of, Some people who understand the domain but don't really know enough about machine learning to identify problems where machine learning can be successful, because there's an awful lot of places where you kind of throw machine learning something, it's just not going to make a difference. So they don't understand enough about the machine learning. And then you have the other group, which understands a lot about machine learning, but doesn't see the opportunities of where it could be applied because they don't understand where the real problems lie. So you really need to bring together those two groups into a single unified whole. And so I felt like, um, since I've been doing this work, work at this intersection for quite a while, that there was an opportunity for someone like myself and, and others who are similarly bilingual to make a difference by really bringing these together. So what Insitro, In-Sitro tries to do is it really tries to leverage those two threads bring them into a single organization where what we're trying to do is to bring machine learning as a core technology in the field of drug development. And I think um, all of us who have been reading anything in the news recently, are reading about the crisis in drug pricing and how it's becoming more and more expensive to make drugs. And that's not because the actual process of producing a drug has become more expensive, it's because our failure rate in bringing a drug all the way from inception through to something that actually works in a human has grown increasingly large over the last few decades. And so every successful drug has to pay for the cost of many, many, many more failures. And that seems like there might be a machine learning problem there if you could make those predictions earlier on and stop those failures at an earlier earlier stage of the process. So if we can take chunks of that problem and turn it into a machine learning question, then we might be able to bring more drugs to people faster, better, and therefore also cheaper.
0: And there's a lot of excitement in this space around using um, machine learning tools, artificial intelligence tools, on life science data. How have you seen the questions, the foundational questions, being, uh, how have you seen them change over the course of your career?
2: Well, I think that a lot of the questions that we're seeing today couldn't even be contemplated, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. For one thing, our understanding of biology has shifted drastically over the last few years because uh, biology was kind of a, 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 in many ways, a black box. Yeah. And, and it, it's the availability of these new measurement tools that has opened the door to uh, observing so much of what goes on within our human body and within individual cells of our human body. I mean, we didn't have, it's kind of almost hard to imagine, uh, given the technology today, how limited technology was uh, only a few years ago without the ability, for instance, to perturb individual genes in the genome using CRISPR. We were just banging the cell with a (laughs) sledgehammer and, and trying to figure out what the heck was going on now you can go in with like a scalpel and modify individual base pairs in your genome and see what happens to the cell when you change that A to a G. And, and I think that provides us with the opportunity to just observe causal mechanisms that drive human disease. But the big limiting factor today with all of these advances that have happened on the technology side is the ability to interpret those data. And you go talk to most biologists and they'll tell you they can produce a heck of a lot more data than they can possibly understand. Um, So we need to create those tools that make sense of all that data, and that's where the need for those bilingual people really becomes a pressing one. Yeah, I'd love to get you to expand on that. What do you think it takes for someone
0: who has a CS background to be a good collaborator?
2: So first and foremost is an attitude of openness and respect, it's, um, and that actually I think applies to both sides. It's very tempting to walk into a collaboration and have someone ask you what appears to you to be a really stupid question <laughs> because it's so basic in terms of what the knowledge that you bring to the table. and therefore treat that other person like an idiot. Those other people are not idiots. They're really smart in their own discipline and there's a heck of a lot of stuff that they know that you don't. They probably Um, have their own PhD. Yeah, they they do indeed have their own PhD and and often a lot longer of a postdoc than computer (laughs) scientists have to undergo. So I think coming in with a genuine willingness to learn and a genuine attitude for treating the the other side with respect and being willing to ask really stupid questions and to answer really stupid questions and over time a shared understanding will develop. That being said, if you're the fortunate, if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where there is a person in the room who's bilingual who can actually play translator, things go much better.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I think another sort of skill set that a lot of people from, from computer science or biology who are looking to collaborate find themselves um, lacking is, is a background in ethical thinking. Um, what do you think are the steps that you need to take there to sort of grow those skills?
2: So I think ethical thinking, which of course is really important in machine learning today in so many ways, and I think all of us have heard the horror stories about how machine learning applied in completely, with, with completely any lack of ill intent, can not only capture but actually amplify biases in the data that we see where uh, you have, you know, these are just real examples that that I've seen and presented in talks where you have, uh, for instance, on on a search ranking algorithm that if you're searching for a name that is from a minority background that connotes a minority background, you see ads for, bail bondsman coming up with that, which is just horrifying. I mean, it's just, it's just horrifying. Or maybe an example that comes close to my own uh, situation is at least this, I don't know if this is still true, but if you went on Google image search and search for CEO, of the first 50 image hits, 49 were male and one was CEO Barbie. Oh so. God. <laughs> Uh, So what message does that send to a a young girl who's searching for what a role model of what a CO could look like? So I think that's just just a problem that we need to think about as a society when you look at the society through the lens of machine learning outcomes and you realize just how skewed things are in so many different ways. I think that problem is probably even more pernicious in the context of, of health data where the biases that occur in the data are often harder to see because mm-hmm. the, the domain is more technical. Yeah. And in this case, the consequences can be quite dire in terms of uh, recommendations for treatment, for instance, that are just not appropriate to the situation. And so how do we test our models to the first talk in the session that we heard to try and ensure that we don't fall into some of those those traps. And and maybe I'll just give one example because I like this one. It's a a kind of, it's not not about ethics, but it's about biases and data and the need for interpretable models. Um, This is an example that a a colleague of mine who had been working on... um, interpretation of radiology images for a long time and trying to figure out whether a patient has a tumor sample, has a tumor or not from the image and was using kind of standard old fashioned machine learning methods to to do the analysis and was getting kind of okay but not great results Um, and then moved to using some of the less interpretable deep learning methods to look at those same images and all of a sudden performance shot through the roof. So being a very smart person, he knew that if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. (laughs) And so started to dig into the models to figure out what was going on and discovered that certain MRI machines leave an invisible watermark on the image denoting the type of the machine that took the image. Well, it turns out that the machines that you get in primary care centers, which is where most controls come from, are different from the ones that you have in tertiary care centers, which oh, is more goodness. of the cases come from. And so the machine was latching onto the ID, the machine learning was latching onto the idea of the machine in order to give you a really strong cue on whether this patient had cancer or didn't have cancer in ways that had absolutely nothing to do with the actual biology of the image. Oh my gosh. So you have to be really, really careful. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Otherwise you're really good at sorting MRI machines, which is maybe not something you need to do. I mean you've not have thought about this, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's an ongoing discussion about the importance of being data driven in scientific discovery. How do you think ML tools can can help further that?
2: Well, so I think ML tools first of all just force you to think about the world from a data lens mm. and create, we hope, a viable alternative to the traditional model of biological discovery, which is here's the th- hypothesis that I have and I'm going to create this tiny, small scale experiment to test this out and create this tiny little sort of prism through which I look at the biological system that in many cases ignores the complexity of everything that's around it. Mm -hmm. Um, The availability of machine learning tools enables the researcher to go and say, I'm going to take a completely unbiased view of biological, of the biological system, just measure everything that I can about that system, and then let the data speak for themselves. And you couldn't do that if you didn't have machine learning because the amount would just be too much for a human brain to deal with, but fortunately machine learning thrives in having lots of data, and you end up with, discoveries that are entirely serendipitous and might never have emerged as a a hypothesis on their own. And so one of my favorite examples in that regard for my own career um, is one of the last papers that I wrote prior to leaving Stanford. It was with an MD-PhD student of mine, um, Andy Beck, who's a pathologist by training. And we took the first data-driven machine learning-based look at cancer pathology images, so the kind of uh, images that a pathologist looks at under the microscope every time they grade a tumor. But instead of doing what pathologists had always done, which is look at the characteristics, like a certain fixed set of characteristics of the tumor cell, like the, the shape of the nuclei and such, we quantified those tumors every which way with hundreds of different features that no one had ever thought to look at. And then we put all of those into an unbiased machine learning algorithm and said, tell us what predicts five-year survival. Um, Not only did we discover pleasingly that this algorithm was better at predicting for five-year survival better than pathologist grading, at least for the average pathologist, was as good as uh, a board of, of, of expert pathologists making a consensus decision. Uh, but we also discovered that the features that came out as being most predictive were exactly those that the pathologists had never looked at. And specifically, the ones that actually didn't have anything to do with the cancer cells had to do with what's called the stromal tissue, which are the cells that surround the cancer. Now for those of you who are a little bit knowledgeable about biology, you might have heard the term tumor microenvironment, which is now considered to be one of the most important prognostic indicators for whether the immune system is going to have access to the cancer and be able to eliminate the cancer using the immune system. So that stromal tissue that we had found there is really um, a factor, a facet of that tumor microenvironment. So today, everyone recognizes that this is sort of a really important thing, but this was back in 2010, long before the tumor microenvironment had come into the forefront as something that we understood to be important. And so in some ways, this data-driven biology gave us Maybe the, one of the first, earliest harbingers of understanding that facet of of, of what um, of cancer prognosis.
0: Do you think that we'll see the, a lot of um, early applications around these tools in in doing that kind of work, pathology? You know being better at consensus than pathologists are, the diabetic retinopathy paper from Google, things like that.
2: I think that um, if we look forward five or 10 years, um, computers will be playing a hugely important role in diagnosis, and that can be in the Google diabetic retinopathy paper, in uh, pathology, in radiology, um, in some of the work that we're currently seeing on various uh, liquid biopsy papers. Those all produce huge amounts of data. Um, millions, literally millions of different readouts that you can get from each of those. Interpreting those and putting together what are often very weak and noisy cues is something that is well beyond the capability of a human. But computers thrive on that regime. So I think that's a place where we're gonna see huge benefit to patients uh, by using machine learning technology. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Kohler, thank you. Professor Kohler, excuse me.
0: Thank you so much for taking this time today. And I think one of the, the really um, key and amazing things as we see looking at your career is this huge arc of of human impact, right,
2: which is really incredible. Um, will you close us out by sharing one of the Coursera impact stories? Thank you, so um, so I told one before about charmin I'll give you one more, um, One this, that one was from Bangladesh, I'll give you one from closer to home, which is the story of Scotty. Um, Scotty was um, a star, he grew up in Florida, was a star student in high school and got a full scholarship to go attend UT Austin. But he was the first in his family to ever have the opportunity to go to college and his family said, look, you know, this college thing, you know, you can't really afford that. You need to uh, support your family. So he went to work, um, in this case as a taxi driver. And then the recession hit and um, he ended up losing his job, and since he lived hand to mouth on his paycheck, lost his home, lost his wife, and eventually, after he started living in his car, lost custody of his 13-year-old daughter because he didn't have a place for her to sleep. And he promised himself that if he ever emerged from this downward spiral, he would never let this happen again. And so he eventually found a job as a horse groomer and Googled free college credit. Now. Coursera doesn't offer college credit, but, um, but came up in the search anyway. And he started to take courses and kind of regained his confidence in who he was and what he could accomplish and enough skills so he could apply to a college and be admitted. And um, anyway, so he started, he got admitted. He was uh, the star student in his sophomore class, got admitted into the honor society, finished his degree, and ended up earning a very nice living as a writer in in his 40s, having been the first in his family to ever go to college. And this is, for him, living a dream that would never have been enabled without access to education. Truly inspiring to hear these stories.
0: Yeah, thank you. Professor Kohler, thank you so much for taking the time to to share these with us. It's truly inspiring to hear them and uh, be reminded of the the power of these tools and the power of sharing the knowledge about them with others. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone for joining us today. Daphne Kohler of so many things, professor, inventor, entrepreneur, It was really amazing to be able to sit down and chat with her, especially in front of an audience. That's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: Tune in next episode.